Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy, and it's good to hear your voice again, John. Yours too. Now, if you are new to Saga Thing, then welcome to the world's best podcast about the Icelandic sagas by two American professors. I mean, the best is a matter of opinion. To my knowledge, we're still the only podcast hosted by two American professors on the sagas. Exactly. That's the point. Are you not tired of this bit yet? Not even a little. I think think we probably just did this, but uh, it doesn't matter. We probably did recently. Now, for every saga that we cover, we provide a detailed summary with some conversation about the literary nuances, historical context, and other tidbits that we deem noteworthy. Right, and increasingly, that process takes a while. Uh, But when we're done with the summary, we take the whole story to the saga thing, where we hand out awards for some silly categories and discuss the quality of the narrative. Mm -hmm. If this is your first episode... I don't know how you found us now, but thank you. Uh, And you're in the right place because we're starting a brand new saga today. Hooray! Hooray! And if you're not a first-time listener, then welcome back to Saga Thing. Uh, Andy and I, as you noticed, uh, took a much-needed break over the holiday season, but we're ready for the new year with a brand new saga. Happy 2024, everybody. Uh, What are we covering this time, Andy? I think you were in charge of selecting and prepping this one for us. Indeed I was, yes. And uh, you're all in for an interesting treat (laughs) as we start our journey through Svartala Saga, also known as the Saga of the People of the Tumultuous Valley. That's an excellent name. Yes, it is. And this saga will tell us exactly how the region came to be known as Svarfadardalr, or the Valley of Svarfudr, or the Tumultuous or Unruly, depending on how you want to Mm -hmm. translate it. Uh, But uh, John, you'll probably unpack that nickname for us when we get... To the uh, judgments. I think you just did it for me, but that's fine. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, right. Uh, but seriously, I, I'm sure I'll have a little bit more to say about it when we get there, when and if that uh, happens. I hope so. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the topography and geography of Iceland, uh, Svarfadardalr is a, a large valley in northern Iceland. If you are traveling on the ring road, you can reach it by heading north along Route 82, which becomes Dalvikurvegur. Now, once you get to Dalvik, you're in Svarfadardalr, the valley that stretches to the south and west from Dalvik into the mountains. Enjoy. Yeah, and this is this is an area that we visited with uh, Butley Butlison's tale, right? Yes, yes, that's right. This is where he uh, he met the nasty farmer Helgi, who got all worked up about Butley using his hay. Remember? And he didn't he also get some help from uh, Butley there? Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're going to see more of him near the end of this saga, just just yeah. for a moment. Well, and of course then. In his own saga, which we may or may not do next. Well, I mean, it might be logical to do that one next, actually, or at Logic. least soon. <laughs> uh, but, but John, I was, I was, I was thinking of using this year, twenty twenty four, to tackle the sagas mm-hmm. of Eyjafjörður, which includes uh, Svarfdale saga, Vatlajot saga, and Viga Gloom saga. Yeah, and uh, don't forget the Fittinga saga. Uh, it's not yes. quite a saga of Eyjafjörður, but it's uh, it deals with many of the same characters and the situations. That we're going to find in those other sagas, but through the perspective of Gudmund the Powerful, who's kind of lurking in the background of these stories. Right, right. So, uh, so yeah, so that's that's kind of my idea for 2024. I don't know what you think about that. To tackle <laughs> a, a bunch of sagas from the same region. I mean, that's that's three or four sagas, Andy. You think we can get through yeah. that many in one calendar year? I mean, given our recent track record of one to two a year? <laughs> <laughs> well, the honest answer, no, I, I don't think so. Uh-huh. But it, it doesn't hurt to try. That's right. I like the ambition. Let's, uh, let's yeah. get through this one first, then we'll see. All right. Well, uh, let's start with a quick overview of what we're dealing with here, shall we? 
in terms of what plot or the other thing? Plot, but uh, go ahead and say it. What's what's the other thing involved, John? Uh, well, I think everyone is going to be very excited to hear that we can't really talk about Swarthdale Saga without dipping our toes into a bit of manuscript studies. But yeah, go ahead with a quick plot overview mm-hmm. if you want to warm it up. Sure. So uh, Svartala Saga follows the lives of two brothers from Naumdal in central Norway. We'll spend this episode getting to know them, and then we'll get to Iceland in the next episode, where we'll join a gentleman named Thorstein Svarfav, who may or may not be the same Thorstein that we meet in this episode, and his son Carl. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, and we'll... Uh... We'll get to all the complexities of uh, Thorsten and his son, Carl, uh, when we get to the manuscript studies. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think you need to keep saying it, but uh, all right. So once <laughs> once we're in Iceland, we follow several generations through a series of feuds between Thorstein's family and the family of a local chieftain named Ljotov. Uh, along the way, there will be intrigue. Uh, some brutal torture, unrequited love, an incredibly badass Draugr wielding an unlikely weapon, and some pretty shocking treatment of the saga's most important female figure, Ingvild the Fair. Yeah, that's going to be a tough section to deal with, um, mainly because the protagonist's handling of Ingvild is not only disturbing, it's really not like anything else we've seen in the sagas to this point. Now, yeah, the brutality of the second part of this saga is one of the things that sets it apart from other family sagas. But there, there's a lot of craziness in this saga, and we're going to get a glimpse of that in this episode. But uh, but the real brutality, yeah, it doesn't start until the narrative shifts to Iceland. So you're going to have to wait. Well, yeah, but by that point, we may be dealing with an entirely different version of the saga. That's right. Yeah, this saga has got a, a bit of a messy transmission history, which complicates any approach to interpreting the text as a whole. Right. Yeah, we've only dealt with this once or twice before. I don't think we've ever dealt with one that's quite this bad. Yeah. Uh, Either this is one text that has a massive hole in the middle due to a large lacuna, or it's two separate versions of the same story written by different people at different times that's been (laughs) loosely, loosely stitched together, but not even stitched together because there's still that large gap in the middle. Yeah. Either way, it's a huge mess for anyone attempting literary analysis. Uh, So (laughs) we're going to give it a go. (laughs) Why not? That's the spirit, John. (laughs) Now, as uh, our old friend Jonas Christiansen points out, uh, there was a version of Svarftaila Saga circulating, a whole version, uh, circulating sometime in the 13th century because Sturtla Thorthesen mentions it in the Lanama book. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a whole section there devoted to explaining the origins, as he calls it, of the people of Svarfather Dollar. Yeah, I had a look at that. It, uh, it differs slightly from the story we get, but it does provide a decent overview. It includes most of the characters we're going to encounter across the saga and the most important parts of the feud that erupts between these two families. That's right. Sadly, though, we don't have that version of the saga available to us today. Instead, what we've got appears to be a piece of a 14th century re- re- of a 14th century revision, which reads more like a legendary saga than a traditional family saga. Yeah, that's exactly right. I thought the same thing, and it's that first part that we're covering today. Right, and and then in the second part, uh, set in Iceland, 
Uh, that one's thought to be a later revision that's not quite as successful or well-written. Uh, as Christensen puts it, the narrative is awkward, with some parts only loosely connected to what has gone before, and the continuity is generally obscure. Most of the people, <laughs> little more than names. Uh, he posits that the reviser may have been working from memory rather than from a manuscript, or he also suggests maybe the reviser simply didn't have the skill to rework the original. <laughs> Either Ouch. way, it's a bit messy, like we mm -hmm. said. And because of the manuscript issues, we're going to have a lot of problems reconciling some of the major differences between the first part, which we're covering in this episode, and the Icelandic section, which we'll get to in the next episode. Right. And even if they are two parts of the same saga, or rather two versions that are slapped together for a 15th century paper manuscript, uh, either way, right, all modern versions of Svarfdala saga come from this amalgamation. Uh, yeah. There's the fact that there's this huge gap in the middle of the narrative, no matter what we look at, that's going to really complicate things when we try to make sense out of this as a coherent narrative. Right, right. But uh, we should probably save any further discussion of the manuscript and studies of it until... No, 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 no. Don't, don't try to skirt around it, Andy. Discussion Skirt of... around what? What? Of the manuscript situation. That's what I said. Of the what? Of the manuscript studies. There you go. Anyways, because the narrative is so incomplete, so messy, so violent, and so late in terms of saga composition, it tends not to get the kind of attention that other sagas mm -hmm. get. Uh, familiar refrain, right? I don't know how deep you went into researching this one, John, but there isn't a whole lot out there on Svarfdala saga. No, there really isn't. Um, I saw a couple of articles. I saw a master's thesis by another sexton, no relation, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, nothing much beyond that. Yeah, I went through a lot of saga-related books, uh, both on my bookshelf and at the library, and I searched indexes for references to this one in as many as I could find. But it's very rarely mentioned, even in passing, in some of the major books about sagas. But uh, Frederick Heinemann, who translated the saga mm -hmm. into English, the, the version that we're using, uh, he's got a pretty good article on Svarfdala Saga from the International Saga Conference, and we'll probably talk about it a few times as we go through this saga. Um, I think it's worth noting, though, in his intro, he blames the lack of interest by other scholars on a few important issues. Uh, first, he says it's the fragmentary condition of this saga. Of course. And second, it's status as a post-classical saga and the bias against these later sagas. Right, which we've talked about before. Yeah, yeah. And, and then he's got a third reason that I think is actually quite interesting. He suggests that the depiction of Iceland as a somewhat wild and unruly place could actually be viewed as problematic by a lot of the Icelandic scholars who study sagas and kind of mm. make the canon of what we talk about. So he says, it seems that Svarfdala saga's lack of restraint, dignity, and high seriousness puts off many scholars. <laughs> so if any of you are wondering why it, it might be appealing to uh, stick around with us and go through this saga despite all of its complications, yeah. it has a lack of restraint and dignity, folks. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so it should be uh, interesting. Yeah, but, but Heinemann is a fan of this saga, it's worth noting. Uh, the goal of his article is to make a case for the saga, in part because, as he says, the saga efficiently characterizes minor and major figures with deft brushstrokes of saga writing at its best. It's actually pretty high praise. It's pretty uh, high praise. I, I thought it was interesting. Uh, Christensen, who's normally very critical of sagas like this one, calls it a powerful story whose Ooh. elements are of foreign origin. True, but uh, 
What does he say right after that, John? I well, he does <laughs> say that the elements of the story <clears throat> deserved a more capable author. There you go. <laughs> but at least the elements of a powerful story are there by gum. Uh, he even compares them to Shakespeare's Hamlet and the Taming of the Shrew. Wow. Uh, although he doesn't, that's, they're handled more deftly there. But uh-huh. to be compared to Shakespeare is still to be compared to Shakespeare. Yeah, <laughs> even if the yeah, comparison is, unlike Shakespeare, the author of the saga <laughs> is incompetent. <laughs> there, there's our guy, yeah. Uh, now, Paul Schock also acknowledges the difficulties of working with the saga, but he describes it as remarkable for its conglomeration and exaggeration of literary motifs. So you know, that's not exactly high praise, but well, it's not damning either. I mean, it does make yeah. it sound interesting. Yeah. He also notes, and this will become an important topic for discussion in later episodes of this series, uh, that the saga stands out, that the saga stands out not only for its violent torture scenes, but also the callous treatment of women. He says, Svarfdala saga is almost completely lacking in the idealization of women that distinguishes the Islendinga saga from the more realistic Konunga saga or the Biskupa saga or the Sturlunga saga. I'm sorry. So, all the sagas we've been reading to this point have idealized women. <laughs> this is uh, this is news to me. I paused over that one as well. I also like the idea that the uh, a realistic saga is going to treat women pretty poorly <laughs> because it represents the reality of the of the world, I guess. But uh, if yeah. you're comparing other sagas to this one, perhaps that's that's true. But uh, but again, it's a subject that I think we should revisit when we finally meet some women in the saga, and that that won't happen for a while. <laughs> uh, but when we do finally meet the uh, the female protagonists of this text, we're definitely mm-hmm. going to want to address Robin Waugh's article, Misogyny, Women's Language, and Love Language, Ingvildur Farkin in uh, Svarftala Saga. Uh, here's mm-hmm. a teaser from her intro, John. I don't know if you read this one. She writes, Condemnation of a woman in a literary work is hardly surprising, but... The revelations of misogyny in this tale are so compelling that they lead readers to search Ingvildur's actions for any crime that would warrant the cruelties against her. She speaks. I'm sorry, is that is that the crime? Yes, yes, the crime is that she speaks. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, with that, I think we've sufficiently whetted the appetite of our listeners for this so. series of episodes on Svarftala Saga. Maybe we, we've scared some away, too, with that last quote. I hope not. People like to get angry, don't they? I mean, this is, That's, this yes, is what the internet do. has taught me. Right? They stay tuned yeah. just to find out what happens to Ingvild that's so bad and what we have to say about it. Yeah, there you uh, go. Now, uh, before we get started, how do you feel about doing a quick Kromkill measurement uh, and then getting started? Oh, absolutely. That's what we do. Okay. Uh, as longer-time listeners will already know, uh, Kromkill is a special unit of measurement we've devised here at Saga Thing. It helps us keep track of saga lengths and compare them. Uh, as you might imagine from the name, one Kravenkettle is uh, equivalent to one Kravenkettle saga, the first saga that we covered on the podcast. Okay, but but hold on. I, I'm I'm actually curious how 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 are we going to do this Kravenkettle measurement when mm-hmm. we don't even have a whole saga here? What what is your process in situations like this? I mean, the process here is that what we have is the uh, the version of the saga that survives and uh-huh. which all subsequent versions are based on, which okay. has this massive gap in it. Right? So all gotcha. we can do is take part A and part B or part one and part two, whatever you want to call it, uh, and measure those together. Uh, we can't, means- we, I, I don't really want to get into speculation about how many words are missing from the middle of this thing. 
And okay, so well, let's out, let's see how this goes. Essentially, <laughs> our problem kill measurement is going to be the measurement of the words that we'll be discussing. <laughs> that makes good sense. That works. All right. All right. So the last couple of times we did this little game, you actually did fairly well guessing the number of problem kills well, yeah. for the saga. Yeah, but to be fair, that's only two times in the last two years. Uh, Lockstyle kind of <laughs> took a while. <laughs> uh, never mind that. Uh, don't you know how to take a compliment, Andy? Come on. No, no. Uh, you have a chance now to prove it isn't just luck. Okay. Uh, we're starting 2024 with a new saga. So, Andy, how many Hravenkels would you guess make up Svarfdala saga? Well, I mean, this isn't a short saga, so it's definitely more than one. Um, but I, I don't want to go overboard here. So, my gut is telling me it's around 2.5 Hravenkels, but uh, I assume that's too much. So, I'm going to lower that to 2.3 Hravenkels just to be safe. How's that sound? Is that a question or is that your answer? No, that's my that's my answer. Two point three profit kettles. How'd I do? Okay, I'm starting to suspect Andy that you figured out the mathematical formula and that you're doing this in advance. Not at all. Because I have for the not. third time in a row, it's... you've you've gotten it bang on the money. It is two point three three profit kettles. No way. Yep. I, I'm, uh, good job. I'm gonna do a little dance over here. Robin Kettle himself would be most proud of you. <clears throat> well, you know. I am amazing, as always. Um, but, uh, you know, hey, there, there's a lot more to discuss, but we've been talking for a while here uh, in the intro. Uh, let's save it for a time when everyone is a bit more familiar with the saga. And, uh, ooh, does that mean what I think it means? Indeed it does. It's time to dive into Svartdala Saga. Part one. The problem with Thorsten, or how to win a father's love. So Shakespearean. <laughs> As many, right. s- if we keep comparing Svartal Saga to Shakespeare, we're going to really get ourselves in trouble with somebody. Nah, nah, it's basically Shakespeare. There you go. Christensen said so. I mean, I've read Pericles of Tyre and Timon of Athens. I suppose it could be like Shakespeare. It could be, yeah. <laughs> now, as many stories do, this one begins in Norway during the reign of King Harold Fairhair. But whereas we often follow a noble family fleeing from the oppression of the young king and seeking independence in Iceland, this story begins with a man called Thorknir, who served as King Harald's agent in Nomdal. Uh, Nomdal is a region north of Trondheim. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to provide some interesting context to this moment, I think it's worth looking into the infamous Snorri Sturluson's account of what happened in Nomdal around the time that King Harald had seized control of Trondheim. Ooh, uh, this from uh, the Heimskringla, right? Yes, I think we've talked about this before, but I'm not sure. Um, it's it's early on in the book. It's chapter 8 or 9, and Snorri writes of the two kings who ruled Namadal at the time, two brothers named Herlog and Hrotlog. Uh, he talks about how they spent three years building a massive burial mound. And when they heard the news that King Harald was coming to Namadal, they each reacted differently. Herlog had his men carry a whole lot of food and drink into the mound, and then buried himself inside, choosing to die a king rather than submit to the tyranny of King Harald. Mm-hmm. Prolog, on the other hand, had his men build a great throne on top of the mound, and then a cushioned bench just below it. Sat himself down on the king's throne, and then threw himself down on the bench, abdicating his kingship and giving himself the title of Earl. Uh, he then went to King Harald and explained what he had done, no doubt, licking Harold's boot in between sentences. Uh, and King Harold was so impressed that he confirmed Hrotlug as Earl of Namadal. 
Um, that it doesn't sound like a true story, but okay. Uh, <laughs> now I feel like what? How dare you? How dare you suggest that anything in the story of King Harold might be fictionalized or uh, yeah, in other, in other ways exaggerated? Strange. It just feels a little too literary for me. But um, I think we've definitely talked about those two before. Uh, but I'm not 100 percent sure like you. But I'm glad you brought that up, actually. I mean, I suppose we could assume for historical accuracy that uh, Thorgner works for him. Good theory, but uh, the saga doesn't mention Hrotlog being in charge of Nomdal, and for that matter, mm-hmm. this opening section doesn't seem particularly interested in historical accuracy any more than Snorri Sturluson was. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, if anything, the opening of this saga feels more like a folk tale or a legendary saga, right, as you yeah. mentioned earlier, uh, and not really like a typical family saga. Yeah, but... Uh, and, and this is why I'm glad you brought up the story of Herlog and Hrotlog. Uh, this is also the story of two brothers in Namdal with very different temperaments. Uh, Thorknir, who is only described as an agent of King Harold in Namdal, has two sons. The eldest is Thorolf. He's described as wise, prudent, handsome, admired, and well-liked. He's got all the hallmarks of a saga golden boy, right down to the name Thorolf. And he's already established himself as a successful <laughs> trader who's traveled widely throughout the world. Right now. Right. And and his younger brother, uh, his brother Thorsten, is described as a very large fellow with a bad attitude. Yes. Uh, and rather than work and contribute to the family in some way or indeed in any way, Thorsten is the very definition of a coal biter. Yes. He lays about the hall, stretched between benches near the fire and basically acts as an obstacle for anyone trying to move around and do any actual work. <laughs> and as much as Thorolf is a success that makes their parents happy, Thorstein's abrasive and lazy nature becomes a matter of family shame, and it gets so bad that their father, Thorknir, basically says that he doesn't want people referring to Thorstein as his son anymore. Yeah, it's not good. No. But of course, uh, as we know from the sagas, Right, this kind of a beginning can herald great things, and something mm-hmm. tells me this coal biter is on the verge of a sea change. Oh, it could be. So one day, Thorolf returns home with all kinds of money and treasures from a recent voyage. And as one might expect, his father, Thorgnir, is very excited about this. He's very proud of his son. Mm-hmm. So to celebrate uh, Thorolf's success, he organizes a feast. And that night when the feast is ready, Thorgnir and his favorite son head home to enjoy the festivities. And just as Thorolf enters the hall and goes to step over what he thinks is a log lying between the benches, his foot catches and he trips suddenly, falling face first into a pile of ashes hilariously. Ah, <laughs> a little prattful to start off our saga. Yeah. Uh, of course, that's no log. It's his brother Thorsten. What? Who immediately bursts out laughing at him. And this sets things off between the two brothers. Uh, Thorolf complains that Thorsten's had a lot of nerve laughing at his blunder. And Thorsten complains that Thorolf acts like he's Thorgner's only son, using the family's possessions like they're his alone and buying reputation and popularity without actually having done anything to earn it. Wow. Well, that's harsh criticism, uh, especially coming from some guy who sleeps next to a pile of ashes all day and night. But uh, (laughs) so Thorolf is magnanimous. He says, I'd be happy to give you my share if you just get up off the floor and leave this house. And Thorsten responds, I have no intention of leaving this house, now or later. So I'll never find anything better to do than lie here on the floor. (laughs) Now, they exchange more harsh words, and what becomes clear is that Thorstein feels underappreciated and underutilized. 
I mean, <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit rich coming from a guy whose favorite thing to do is to lay around. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Thorsten wouldn't be the first younger brother in history to act this way. Well, you say that like you've got experience with some Thorstens, John. No, my younger brothers are absolutely perfect. Right, guys? <laughs> <laughs> well, audible wink. Wink, wink. <laughs> I'm sure that you're an excellent role model as the eldest brother. Um, yeah, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting here is that Thorolf, golden boy that he is, quickly realizes that maybe Thorstein just needs a little opportunity and direction. And in his eagerness to help his brother reach his potential, Thorolf offers an oath. He says, I shall never part from you as long as we live, brother. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, Thorsten does seem impressed with his brother's magnanimity. He accepts Thorolf's friendship and his oath, but he does make one condition. Well, of course he does. He says, My request may seem strange to you, but I want to have the last word whenever we disagree. Uh, that, uh, first of all, I, I like that you've gone with this voice because the people that listen to the podcast on uh, double speed or they speed it up a little bit, that voice We're is going to sound very normal to, to them. <laughs> but uh, That's right. That's exactly my plan. It, it's a lot to ask. And everybody else will sound like little pipsqueaks. <laughs> are, are you done now? I wish I, wish I hadn't brought it up. <laughs> I can go as long as you want me to. Oh, oh, man. Um, it, it's it's a lot to ask, which Thorolf quickly acknowledges, saying, What you ask seems to me a greater burden than an honor, but I will agree to this if it will make you an honorable man. Yeah, and Thorsten explains that this part of the agreement is more for Thorolf's benefit than his own. Uh, he suspects that Thorolf will not be likely to fulfill this promise to give Thorsten the last word when it matters most. Nevertheless, the brothers are in agreement. And to show that he's serious, Thorstein takes the stool that he uses to prop his feet up outside and he smashes it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty funny moment, actually. Mm -hmm. And there's another moment when Thorolf approaches their mother and asks her to run a bath. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when she asks why, he says, Thorstein, your son, has just risen from the floor and wants a bath. <laughs> yeah, and she replies, my word. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and Thorstein not only washes up for the first time in probably forever, he also gets his hair cut and finally changes his clothes. So Thorolf tries to give him his fine scarlet mantle lined with gray fur, but Thorstein is so big that it barely reaches his waist. Thorstein hands it back and asks for a simple overcoat instead, even if it's not so fine as the mantle that his brother offered. And the only thing Thorstein lacks now is a good weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorolf once again tries to give his brother a costly sword, a, you know, a treasure to signify his status. Yeah. But Thorstein just takes it and then bends it around so that the tip touches the hilt. The comedy's just getting started, folks. Get me a stronger weapon, he says. Not like this switch. <laughs> so Thorolf tells him to pick a more suitable weapon from his weapons chest in the morning. Yeah, and that evening, the two brothers, both squeaky clean, sit on either side of their father throughout the feast, though Thorknir mm. doesn't acknowledge his son Thorstein at all. Well, I mean, he's had a wash and a haircut, right? It's possible that he uh, doesn't recognize him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, even with a, a but, wash and I haircut. I mean, even with the wash and haircut, he's still not willing to acknowledge his son. Even with the wash and haircut, but it doesn't matter. The brothers are bonded 
and the future is looking bright for both of them. So in the morning, mm-hmm. Thorstein pays a visit to Thorolf's weapon chest, and he finds there the head of a wood axe that he quite likes, and he fits that with the shaft from a broad axe. Right, and it's it's much humbler and more sort of workmanlike than the fancy sword his brother offered. Yeah. But it's more suitable for Thorsten's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the kind of guy who hefts an axe on his shoulder, not the kind of guy who walks around with a fine sword at his waist. That's right. Uh, as the saga tells us, this is the weapon he used for the rest of his life. Now, the, the winter passes quickly. And when spring arrives, the two brothers prepare for their first voyage together. And Thorolf asks his brother what he'd like to do, where he'd like to go. But Thorstein, surprisingly, says that it's probably best for Thorolf to decide because he's the more experienced of the two. It's possible that Thorstein really has turned over a new leaf. Oh, I think he has. And Thorolf, well, you know, actually, John, now is probably a good time to end this section and talk about something that I'm sure you noticed as well in this kind of uh, where are uh-huh. we going conversation. Are we, are we talking about the familiarity of all this? Yeah, I mean... Isn't this whole thing just a nicer version of the scene from Ale Saga, where Ale bullies his way onto Thorolf's ship? His brother, who's mm. also a golden boy with the same name? Right. So we've got a pair of brothers. Mm-hmm. One is handsome and beloved and named Thorolf. The other's large and irascible. There's a feast. One's welcome. The other isn't. The brothers end up agreeing to set out together in the spring. And their father's grumpy. I mean, apart from the name Thorolf, I don't really see the parallels here. <laughs> right, right. No, definitely nothing there. What was I thinking? <laughs> no, it's obviously quite similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but are you, are you suggesting a connection to Ale Saga? No, no, not at all. I, I just wanted to acknowledge the okay. parallels that are there and the way that this author, whenever this saga was written, is following the tradition or the motif that we've seen in many post-classical sagas of adapting familiar character types and scenarios to surprise the audience. So I, I wouldn't claim that Thorolf and Thorstein are modeled on Thorolf and Ale, at least not directly, but I would claim that this author is familiar with Ale's <laughs> saga and expects his audience to know it as well. Okay. I mean, at the very least, we can say that they're familiar with the sibling rivalry, opposite brothers motif. Yeah. Like the, the idea of kind of the light and dark sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that's the motif we're working with, the Ale Saga author follows that motif through by maintaining a contrast, right? A contrast between Ale and Thorolf throughout and between two sides of the family throughout. Yeah. The author of this saga, as you've said, is leading us down that same path, even to the name Thorolf, but then takes us in a new direction where the brothers end up working in perfect harmony despite their differences. Yeah, but let's be fair to Ale and Thorolf. Uh, they do work well together in the end despite their differences, but... The brothers in Svarfdala Saga, yeah. they're, they're different because they seem to harmonize so perfectly. Thorstein's mm-hmm. set up as an Ale-style character initially, but he quickly shows his true nature, which is good when the opportunity arises. When the opportunity arises. Right, and I'd say that's pretty typical of the coal-biter figure. A- exactly, right. That, that's that's very much in keeping with the coal-biter figure. But yeah, yeah. Ale actually is kind of an uneasy fit into that character, right? Because Ale's a very active young man. Yeah, not a coal biter um, at all, really. Greta Asmundersen is actually kind of a better example of the coal biter, right? The mm-hmm. guy who doesn't want to do anything and resents being forced into activity. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ale fits everything else about this uh, this prototype, except that he's very, very much an active man mm-hmm. right from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, Thorsten is actually more of a classic example of the coal biter than Ale is. 
That's true. Uh, but as we're about to see, uh, Thorstein's true nature appears to be that of a hero, a kind and good hero. Well, okay, now be careful, because that, that kind of sounds like you're suggesting that A.L. Scott Grimson isn't the hero. Uh, not at all. And I'm not saying that, uh, though I think we could make the argument that he's a deeply flawed hero. Um, I don't think that we'll see as many flaws in Thorstein. I think you're just casting aspersions on my Thingman, sir, and I won't have it. No, no, he's a perfect fellow. You're right. I, I, maybe <laughs> I misread the saga. <laughs> but I, I, don't, I don't think that we're going to see as many flaws in Thorstein throughout the rest of his time in the saga. He's coal-biter and then hero, and that's kind of it. Right, but of course, that's we have a problem there because... Now you're making an assumption about how many Thorstens there are in this saga. Uh, whether there's two or just one fair, is going to be a bit of a contention point. later on. Fair point. Uh, who knows? The Thor state of this side. Yeah. Uh, so are we just pointing out the parallels and how they ultimately diverge? I mean, for the most part, yes. But I, I think it's important when reading a text like this that we see what the author is doing with their characters and the motifs that they choose to play with or exploit. Um, and again, this is the literary analysis stuff that we like to do. Uh, in in Ale Saga, his consistently fierce independence and egotism is not only essential to Ale's character, it's essential to the themes of the work as a whole. And mm-hmm. given that Svarfdala Saga is, I think, a pro-Norway, pro-kingship saga, the choice to diverge from the independent character of an Ale Scotland Grimson, that's likely quite telling, right? Mm-hmm. Thorstein is an interesting character who, like Ale, comes with nuance. Over the course of his time in the narrative, which is depending on how many there are, uh, could be very short. (laughs) He shows that he's capable of learning. He's capable of changing. He's capable of admitting when he's wrong and deferring to someone who has more experience than he does. So to understand fully what his character's evolution suggests for this saga, I think we have to revisit this conversation once we've finished this section and, and maybe the saga as a whole. Right, but I think even then it's still going to be difficult to make any definitive statements because we're missing so much of the saga's middle. You, you're always leaning on that lacuna. The style of the two halves, I mean, it's the, the style of the two halves is so different. That's true. It's going to provide us with a real challenge to overcome when we try to make any claim of a comprehensive vision for a character or for the narrative on the part of any one author or even any one text. Yeah, but John, that's what makes this fun, right? Right? Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, speaking of character growth, the typically stubborn and abrasive Thorsten has now deferred to his brother Thorolf's wisdom on the destination and purpose of their first voyage together. That's right. And soon enough, they're setting sail as merchants, destined for distant ports. They spend all summer traveling around and making good money along the way. And all in all, it's a, it's a great success. And finally, when autumn comes, they return home to Namdal and to the comfort of Thorknir's Hall. Well, I mean, it's a comfortable place for Thorolf. Right. Uh, d- despite Thorsten finding his new groove, Thorgner continues to be dismissive of his younger son. Uh, when they return, their father greets Thorolf, but pretends not to see Thorsten standing next That's to him. That's cold. He's got a haircut. It he's is. washed. It he's is. Traveling. It's He's had time to get used to the new smell. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but things remain cool between father and son throughout the winter, uh, with Thorgner never once speaking to Thorsten. Okay, th- this is rough. John, what, what do you think is going on here? What's the problem? 
Well, this whole section's uh, about the problem with Thorsten, right? His wasted potential. Yeah, yeah, wasted potential. That's a good good way to think about it. Yeah, I mean, so so Thorolf, who's a kind and wise and understanding older brother, thought that Thorsten should just apply himself to a trade or, you know, to, to going out and seeing the world the way he's doing. Mm-hmm. They've enjoyed some success with that. But the impression I get is that Thorgner expected more from Thorsten. Uh, let's not forget that Thorsten is described as very big. A very abrasive figure. Mm-hmm. If Thorgan is a man of his era, then he recognizes that men like Thorsten aren't suited for laying around the floor near the fire or for flitting about the coastline as a merchant. Mm. Men like Thorsten, right, men, uh, are best suited for a different <laughs> life. Mikkelvexti. Mikkelvexti. Yes. Uh, they're best suited for a different life. Uh, one that leads to riches and glory, mostly through violence. Yeah, well, speaking of a different life, it doesn't take long for Thorolf to figure out that his brother Thorstein isn't very enthusiastic about the prospect of another summer roving about shorelines as a merchant. He says, It seems to me that trading expeditions do much to increase a man's splendor and prestige, but very little for his bravery. He then asks Thorolf to buy two longships. One for Thorolf and one for Thorstein. Pretty cool, right? Not really, no. No? Uh, Thorsten's eager to embrace the dangerous lifestyle that he was apparently born for, but he insists that Thorolf continue to sail the Nor as a merchant and not risk his life. Yeah, so Thorolf is willing to buy these longships, but he's not so happy about being told to stay on the Nor. I prefer Mm -hmm. something else, he says, for I plan to hold to what I promised earlier when I said that I would never leave your side for as long as we both are alive. Yeah, that's a that, those are ominous words, right? We, I mean, we've we've read enough sagas on the podcast by now to recognize yeah. uh, the the unintentional prophecy when it's spoken. Yeah, uh, Thorsten explains that it's one thing for Thorsten to die while raiding, but another completely for Thorolf to die. This is dangerous stuff, Thorolf. If you don't return, your father will think that I've plotted against your life. Besides. It would be a terrible shame if something happened to you. Nobody would miss me. Poor, poor Thorstein. I mean, yep. John, that's one of the saddest lines in the sagas right there. Nobody would miss me. Mm-hmm. I mean, whatever happened yeah, don't, to him. Don't let, don't let the goofy voice I'm doing uh, undermine the, the, the drama of yeah. the words. I mean, whatever happened to him, the, the psychological damage that he suffered as a child still weighs very heavy on his heart. But mm-hmm. fortunately, he's got Thorolf at his side to help him navigate his low self-esteem. I think, you know, we can also look at the fact that he, in that line, he says, your father yeah. would think I'd plotted against you, right? It's not just that um, their father has, has sort of disowned him. He recognizes himself as having no real relationship with his father. Mm-hmm. And because of that little worth as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and whether or not it's a good idea, uh Thorolf is not listening. Right? He sells the Nor and buys two longships. Uh, but when summer comes, the two brothers set sail as Vikings together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not clear where they go, but they have great success and return in fall with five ships loaded with treasure. So things have clearly gone extremely them. well. Uh, by the time they finish their third year of raiding, they're up to 12 ships and all of them with plenty of wealth. Yeah, but uh, does Thorstein have his father's love, John? Uh, yes. 
That sounds like a question. That's not a very firm answer. Well, I mean, there's no scene where Thorgner throws his arms around Thorsten and bathes him in fatherly affection and tears. Uh, but when they come home that third summer after raiding, Thorgner does welcome Thorsten home. Oh. So, you know, now that the guy's got 12 ships uh, at his command, it's worth acknowledging him as a son. Oh, how touching. Part two, Brothers in Arms. Now that Thorgnir is feeling all warm and fuzzy towards his two sons. Well, warm and fuzzy's a bit strong. He's willing to acknowledge Thorsten as his son. <laughs> Let's not get too crazy. That's true, yeah. Uh, well, he approaches them to suggest that they take over the family farm and its management. But uh, both brothers balk at the idea very quickly. Right. This is actually um, a thought I had about Thorsten, right? The the uh, thing we see in Saga is a great deal. So that the older son goes out and makes a name mm-hmm. for himself by traveling, by trading, by raiding. The younger son stays home and takes care of the farm. Yeah. Is some of Thorgner's anger at Thorsten that he, when he finally figures out what he wants to do with himself, it's leave home. Hmm. Interesting. That no son has stayed behind to take care of the farm. Right? Because then that becomes Thorgner's thing is, I need you guys to take care of my farm. That's that's possible. But I just, I, I get the feeling that Thorgner has a bigger idea of what Thorstein is supposed to be than just a farm mm-hmm. manager. Or perhaps it's a mistake to start imparting a kind of psychological depth to this character at this point in the saga. <laughs> Probably, yes. Yeah, I think Thorstein is meant to be rather uh, flat. <laughs> well, whatever the case, uh, Thorstein <laughs> argues that he and his brother haven't proven themselves enough in combat yet. They haven't They haven't done enough raiding, they haven't done enough fighting mm-hmm. to settle down to a quiet life of farming in Norway. He says, Brother, I want you to send us out against some Vikings where we can really test ourselves, earn some fame, where I can ask for either tribute or death so that I'll be remembered afterwards. I, I, I really, I predict now that listeners are either going to love or hate the voice you've chosen. Probably the latter. It's an interesting one. Look, I'm an artist. I make decisions, I stick by them. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. I mean, at least there's some difference there. Uh, I, I do the same voice for every character. So, Well, this is, I'm trying to, you know, you try to, you try to yeah. give these characters voices so that they can be remembered. That's right. Now, Thorknir says that He'll likely get what he's after if he thinks it's so important to die so soon, which I, I like. It's <laughs> good, good, line. good fatherly advice. Uh, then he recommends that they seek out a terrible Viking by the name of Lot the Pale, Uh-oh. who could be found in the Swedish Skerries near Gotland. He says, he's got 15 ships and one dragon ship that's fitted with iron above the waterline, and it can ram any ship afloat. He calls it Iron Prow. He's a big, handsome Viking. And I hear tell that weapons can't pierce his skin. Hey, everyone. It's Yot the Pale again. (laughs) (laughs) He's everywhere. It's the stock figure of Yot the Pale, the berserker Viking who weapons cannot pierce. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not necessarily the same Yot the Pale. Just well, no, it absolutely figure. is not. It's a stock character. It's it's, uh, yeah. it's this very oddly specific stock character that the saga introduced us to over and over again. Yep. Uh, so uh, Thorsten, who obviously hasn't read that many sagas, is hearing about Yotapel for the first time. And he <laughs> right. says, No, you're talking. 
I'll either be dead or I'll have killed Yotapel by autumn. It's a fine boast. Now, Thorstein immediately begins preparations for this journey. But on the sly, he also buys a Nor, that's a merchant's ship, without telling Thorolf. And when it comes time for them to set sail, Thorstein reveals his plan to his brother. Yeah, his plan is that Thorolf isn't part of the plan. <laughs> right. But not because he doesn't trust his brother, but because Thorolf's life has real value in Thorstein's mind. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to lose his brother on this dangerous journey. Right. It's it's all very touching, but it's ultimately fruitless. Uh, the brothers argue, and Thorstein reminds Thorolf that he had previously sworn to let him have the final word when the two of them disagreed. Well, Thorolf isn't hearing it, though. He says, you cannot talk your way out of this, brother. Life would seem worse than death if I parted from you. Right, and after they've debated for a while, and against his better judgment, Thorsten is forced to give in. I have a feeling that one of us will not return from this journey. And it is unlikely that neither of us will return. So Thorolf puts an end to the argument with a bit of wisdom. He says, No man can live beyond the day of his doom, and it seems more honorable to die by your side than to live on in shame and dishonor. Well, that's very sweet. And with that, the two brothers march down to the ships and set sail. <laughs> they don't spend any time raiding. They just head straight for the scaries where Lyot the Pale makes his home. Yeah, home is an interesting word. Uh, the saga says they sailed among the scaries until they spotted a castle. Yes, a castle. And just in case you think we're choosing our words poorly here, dear listeners, let me assure you, the saga uses the word castelli. I don't think uh, you need a lot of etymological attention to figure this one out. No, no. I, I am curious, though, when that word comes into popular use in Old Norse. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't doubt that it was used as a term for strongholds and fortresses, which I assume is the meaning here, but... Uh, well, I, I wouldn't be too sure. This this is a younger saga, right? I mean, the part we're in here reads almost like a fairy tale or a folk tale rather than a traditional saga. True. Yeah. It's possible they intend for us to think anachronistically here, right, about maybe what a castle would be in this scene. It's a move that's been done before. It's been done in everything from medieval romances to modern films. Oh, fair fair enough. But the word itself feels out of place in the family sagas. It does, yes. Which is why I had to look into it a little. Uh-huh. What exactly does that look like? <laughs> well, you know what kinds of shenanigans we get up to when we're uh-huh. interested in words, John. Uh, But in this case, I went to the Dictionary of Old Norse Prose and did a little search. It's a really great resource online hosted by the University of Copenhagen. Uh, I'm sure you're going to put the link in the show notes. Oh, why not? Uh, If you're interested in words in the sagas, it's a great place to to look. Uh, But my suspicion was confirmed by my search there. Mm -hmm. Um, Kastali is a word that can be found in legendary sagas like Ragnar Lothbrok's saga, in chivalric sagas like Tristram's saga, or in a variety of king sagas, but not very often in family sagas. It didn't really pop up as a family saga word. Uh, you want to know why, John? Oh. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and edge out on a limb here and say because why there aren't you? many castles in Iceland. <laughs> and that's where the majority <laughs> of family sagas take place. Uh, that that's kind of the thing. It's not exactly mm-hmm. a great mystery, really. But plenty of sagas have characters raiding and traveling outside of Iceland. They just don't seem to bump into castles very often. So it's a little weird when right. uh, when Thorstein kind of happens upon a castle 
in the scaries mm-hmm. of uh, of Sweden. Yeah, I mean, whatever you make of the word choice, it's it's another indicator. It's a small indicator of this saga's status as kind of an outlier in the family saga genre. Yeah. Uh, but what about this castle, Andy? What happens next? Yes, well, when Thorstein spots the castle, he orders his men to anchor the ships nearby. Uh, there's about ten of them with him. And to pitch Sorry, the awnings over them. men or ships? Uh, uh, ships. Uh, and he asks them to pitch the awnings over them quietly. And as it's late at night, they've got the benefit of darkness. So he sends a group of scouts to row across the scary to get a closer look at the situation. And sure enough, they spot the dragon-headed prow of a ship that looks to be made of solid gold. So much for iron, huh? Alongside it, there are 15 other ships, each covered in a black awning. And in the flickering light under the awnings, they see men sitting around and drinking. Hmm. So with a good sense of what they're up against... They return to their own ships and report back to Thorsten. Right. And now now when he hears the report, Thorsten makes an interesting choice. He orders the men to unload all the goods from their ships and bury them. Because I don't want them to gain a single penny from us. It's an interesting detail. Uh, now, mm-hmm. when, when morning comes, Thorstein has the ship prepared for an attack. But before he launches an all-out assault, he's hoping to have a little chat with the Vikings. Yeah, I mean, you can't just attack and kill a great Viking like Yolt the Pale without first making sure you've got the right guy. After (laughs) all, there are a lot of guys named Yolt the Pale riding around in Scandinavia at this time. You want to make sure you've got the right one. Uh, And more importantly, you want to make sure that he knows who you are. Uh, Yeah, I think that's part of it, yeah. And and this leads to a fun little exchange between the two men. Uh, Yolt walks along the gangway of the dragon ship, wearing a scarlet kirtle with a black hooded cape and a cap. And when he hears who's arrived to attack his stronghold, he... Uh, his, his, I'm sorry, his castle. His castle. When he hears who's arrived to attack his castle, he says something that really surprised me. He says, What do you want from me, Thorstein <laughs> Thorgnison? <laughs> I've never met you, but I know who you are. I somehow find this unbelievable, but... Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm willing to go along for the ride in this story, you know? Okay, I mean, you kind of have to. Right? I mean, this isn't, a, this isn't a saga that exists in the same kind of reality that we're used to. I think, uh, you know, oh. the fact that we're going a bit outlandish with the voices kind of is just, you know, us reacting, I think, to the text. Um, You mean the kind of reality that has a, a family of witches whip up a storm? Yeah, you know, the kind of reality that might have spectral seals at some point popping up out of the floor. Yeah, and, and, and yet somehow that kind of thing doesn't bother me as much as Yolt the Pale having heard of Thorstein. But whatever. <laughs> well, Thorstein says he's come to offer a deal to Yolt. He says, Oh, really? I, I want to offer you the chance to go ashore and take your weapons and clothes with you. Your men can keep only their shirts and breeches. Well, it's... <laughs> No shock that Yolt isn't a, a big fan of this idea. Right, he says, right. This doesn't sound very fair. But tell me, what's the other option? That we do battle. Well, at this point, Yolt asks how many ships Thorstein has with him. And when he finds out that Thorstein only has ten, Yolt grins widely and says that he's happy to do battle with Thorstein then. And everybody's happy because Thorsten's also pleased. Mm-hmm. He asks Yolt to put all of his ships up against the ten he's got with him. Uh, but Yolt isn't looking for an easy and dishonorable fight. 
He says that he won't put more ships into battle than Thorsten has, just to keep things fair. What a guy. They, they go back and forth a bit in this really strange negotiation, uh, trying to figure out the fairest way to have this battle. They eventually arrive in an agreement. Yalt will only send out ten ships, but he'll replace any captured or sunken ships with a fresh one from his fleet until they're all gone. Wow. Assuming, of course, that that's necessary. Well, that's a, a good deal, I guess. And Very that, fair-minded. The battle, the battle begins. Mm-hmm. They pull the awnings down and lay the ships together, ten against ten. Now, Thorstein opens things up by launching a hail of rocks from his ship, and and then, well, they, they just fight all day long. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the day, Thorstein's lost five of his ten ships, but Ljot has fared much worse, losing 14 of the 15 with... Only the dragon ship left. Right, but by that point it's getting dark, and they call a truce until morning, which is very sporting of both sides. Right? This whole thing oh, is yes. coming off as very civilized. Mm-hmm. Uh, before they retire to tend their wounds and eat, Yolt and Thorsten exchange words again. Yolt stands in the gangway of his dragon ship and offers some words of encouragement, and he even compliments Thorsten's battle prowess. What a guy. What he a offers guy. to let Thorsten leave with the ships and goods that he's already captured, and Thorsten responds by basically saying, Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> uh, he insists that he'll have the treasures on the dragon ship too, or else he'll die trying. Well, Yolt finds this laughable. You're fooling yourself if you think you can take this dragon ship with those five ships. I'd feel confident even if you were to come at me with ten ships against this one. Take my advice, Thorstein. Leave while you still can. That's a that's a lot from a guy standing on his last ship. <laughs> it's a it's uh, kind of a yacht from a, a guy. Yeah, yeah, I understand. But uh, Thorsten does interpret this as a sign of fear in the yacht, or at least he he plays it like he does. He yeah. says, Well, now I see that you're afraid to come against me. Go mm-hmm. on then. You can be on your way now, but know that you'll be followed by words of derision wherever you go. Yacht shakes his head and he says, Fine. You'll have your wish to die here before the next evening arrives. Ooh. And then they part ways. They row the ships to shore, pitch their awnings up, and tend to the wounded and eat as night falls. It's great stuff. I, I think you can see kind of what Heinemann's talking about, that the, the, the characterizations of both major and minor characters, mm-hmm. at least so far, pretty dang good in this saga. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is the good part, uh, because when they finish eating... Thorsten says they won't be able to sit idly by if they're hoping to defeat that dragon ship in the morning. Ooh. He's not worried, though, because he's got what we uh, what we in the biz call a cunning plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This this whole section feels like it's right out of the saga of King Harold Hardrada to me. That's an interesting comparison, actually. Yeah, I, I can I can see why you yeah I can see why you'd make that connection. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because so, I mean, well, he's got a he's got a major problem that. The dragon ship is inaccessible to them. Right, right. right. And so he's got to come yeah. up with some kind of trick to get right. on board that ship or to get right. access to that ship. Uh, so, well, here's the plan he comes up with. Uh, while Yot and his men are recovering during the night, Thorsten and his men will go over to a nearby island with a forest on it. Mm-hmm. They spend the evening cutting down some big trees. Uh, and it's, it's unclear if they wait until morning or if they do this in the middle of the night. But once the trees are all cut, they make their way over to the dragon ship. And while John, one there's group- got to be the the obligatory like uh, Monty Python 
and the Holy Grail where the, the Frenchman is sitting on the castle listening to the the saws in the forest. Like, what is, <laughs> what is that? You hear trees being cut down? Um, yeah. No, it's uh, there's clearly a, a long and comedic montage here while we wait to see what's happening out in the forest. Yes. Um, but so once they've all got their ship loaded down with lumber, one group launches an all-out assault from one side. The other group ferries those cut-down trees to the other side and piles them all up on the dragon ship, causing the ship to keel over. Well, not not keel over, uh, which would be to turn upside down. It what? heals over, which is to list oh to one God. side rather heavily. Well, don't you know you're not a terminology? Uh, <laughs> I am. I am what we would call a landlubber. Ah, well. <laughs> And I, I, have a I think it's just a good the, thing that I know what a keel is. That's uh, very impressive. But yes, it heals over, and that's the idea. So, very and well. It once, heals over. Yes, H-E-E-L for, for those yes. who are going to look up Arr. these words. <laughs> now, once, Arr, she's once, healing badly, sir. She's healing. Oh, my ship's healing. <laughs> and I don't mean in the good way. Now, once the... <laughs> Now, once the ship is listing, Thorstein and Thorolf take advantage of this lower Oh, don't you mean healing, side. Andy? <laughs> healing and listing are similar, uh, you know, so we can... I didn't want to repeat myself. Uh, uh-huh. Thorstein and Thorolf take advantage of this lower side to mount their attack. Uh, Thorstein charges into the fray with his axe, and he quickly realizes that this broad axe handle that he's got on it makes the weapon too unwieldy in the tight press of men on board. And so he throws it down and picks up the stump of a log, and he fights with that, whatever that means. Sure, why not? And while Thorstein is smashing his way through the enemy lines, Thorolf is right by his side, defending his brother's blind side. What a guy. You do have to wonder, um, in what circumstance a lump of wood is not a problem, but a an axe handle is... In the tight okay. press of men, John. If you've never been in a tight press of men on a ship, you wouldn't know. But those I mean, who have. Look, you understand. and I have different ideas of a good Friday night. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> so take this stump of a log and uh, do what you will with it. That's right. I, pre- I, I prefer a nice cup of coffee, maybe a seat by the fire, maybe a book. There you you go. like a tight press of men on a ship. <laughs> who among us is, who, who can say what's right and what's wrong there? Nothing. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, you know, my night doesn't end with a body count. <laughs> uh, anyway, so the once they board, the fight on the dragon ship is fierce. And once again, it lasts into the evening. This is now, if you're keeping track, a two-day battle on these ships. Yeah. As evening falls, Yelta Pale sees Thorsten and Thorolf closing in his position uh, where he's uh, fighting on the poop deck. He suddenly realizes that all is lost. He throws his sword at the brothers and then tries to jump overboard into the sea. At that very moment, Thorsten charges forward and strikes the alt so hard with the stump of the log that, well, we can just, the saga says, he hit him so hard that his head and shoulders fell overboard and his legs into the ship. All right, wait. So hold it. I, I've been waiting to uh-huh. ask you this because uh-huh. I want to be sure I've got this part right. Yeah. Go ahead. Now, surely what is meant here, and I can't possibly be wrong given that Thorstein is wielding a tree stump of some kind, mm-hmm. is that Thorstein hits him as he's diving off the ship, and he falls dead with half of his body hanging over the ship and the other half hanging into the ship. 
kind of like slumped over the gunwale there. Right. And I can see why that would be a logical reading. And in fact, I think that's probably the logical way to think about it. Yes, uh, I think but, it is. Um, I think we're supposed to think that Yacht is actually being bisected by this <laughs> lump of wood. Come on. And that half of him lands in the water and half of him lands on the ship. Uh-huh. Two things here. First, that's kind of hard to believe. Fair enough. I agree. <laughs> Second, if we accept that Thorstein waxed out the pail in half with a tree stump, then we can stop the search for a best bloodshed winner right now. That is some I mean, crazy stuff that's going to be hard to beat, John. There's a lot of saga left, Andy. A lot yeah, of blood to be spilt yet. Come on. <laughs> well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, it's a good one. Uh, but we have to remember that uh, their father told them, Thordner told them, that Yolt the Pale could not be pierced by any weapon. He could not be cut by any weapon. That's true. So what we're looking at here is some variation of the same motif we see in, for example, Beowulf. Right? Where Never heard a, of it. What's a, that? Beowulf? Yeah, it's a, it's this it's this little story from England. Uh, hmm. But this idea of a person or a monster who has been rendered impervious to traditional weapons is killed by somebody who either eschews normal combating style or who takes a high-minded refusal to take any advantage over his enemy and thus stumbles into the correct answer to the conundrum posed by this person's impervious skin. Sure. Bilt the Pale is one of those figures. He's a Grendel figure in that way, right? He's got impervious skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no uh, doubt about that. Right. So he's being broken by this lump of wood because it's not an edged weapon. But broken uh, in half, John? I know, but this is the thing, is that we're supposed to understand that Thorsten is so strong that this presumably <laughs> sharp-edged lump of wood? <laughs> I guess. Well, you know, it's been whittled it's down a, from hitting all the other people on the There you ship, go. So. There you go. Uh, uh, that's right. Uh, so that's I think that's what's happening here. But uh, whatever happens to him, he's uh, he's whether he's in one piece or two or many or lots, mm-hmm. uh, Lilt the Pale is no more. And with the death of Yot, the battle finally comes to an end. Thorsten takes a moment to look around, and he sees that only 12 of his men are left standing. Oh, man. And the implication seems to be that all of Yot's men are dead as well. It's so tragic, this whole thing. Uh, it's a senseless loss of life in the name of fame and glory? No, no. I mean, I think of the body count, <laughs> Of course John. not. Oh, right. Sorry. There's, there's no way to determine how many men died on each side. I mean, that's a that's a senseless waste. All the author had to do was say something like, Thorstein set out with 10 ships, each with mm-hmm. 30 men, or mm-hmm. Yolt the Pale gathered his 400 men for battle. Something, something, yeah. anything. Give us a sense of the scale of untimely yeah. deaths. Yeah. But no, we get nothing. Yep, that's the tragedy here, Andy. Mm-hmm. But in all seriousness, there is another tragedy that we need to address. Mm-hmm. Now, because it's so dark, Thorstein, Thorolf, and the 12 remaining men begin rowing back toward their camp without even removing the bodies or washing the blood from the dragon ship. But as they near the shore, Thorolf asks them to stop, saying that he can't go on any further. And when Thorstein asks whether he's been wounded, Thorolf says, I cannot conceal it. When Lyot threw his sword, he was aiming at you. So I moved my shield so that I was the less protected. And the sword caught me just below the ribs and pierced my gut. My intestines fell out then, but 
I held them in by tying my clothes round my waist. I've been walking around like that ever since. Now my walking is at an end. It's a good line. It's a good uh, line. And this is that that uh, Gisli Sirson kind of moment, right? The yeah. tying up your shirt in order to hold in your spilled intestines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, uh, Thorsten is heartbroken at this news. He says, Things have turned out as I predicted. That one of us would not return. I would have given a great deal for us never to have made this journey, brother. These, these two, I'm, I'm telling you, John. It's, it's touching. They love each other so much. <laughs> Thoroff reminds his brother that no man can live past the day of his doom. And then, get the tissues ready, folks, he says. It seems better to me to die with a good reputation than to live with the shame of not having followed you. It's beautiful. That's that's Oscar-worthy stuff there. Or whatever. And and and, and he dies. <laughs> Thorolf has one final request, though. He says that he expects his name will disappear like withered grass and be forgotten once Thorstein is gone. But he expects that Thorstein will live a long life and continue the family line, and he asks that one day, if Thorstein ever has a son, that he name him Thorolf. It's beautiful. And he wants all the fortune that he's amassed as a merchant and Viking to go to this nephew. And of course, Thorsten, under these circumstances, what else could he do? He promises that he will do this. For for I believe it will increase our honor, and that good fortune will follow your name so long as it is born in our family. And then Thorolf dies. And there's a tragedy. But we do at least get to count his death, John. (laughs) Always a silver lining with you. Yes, there Uh, is. Now... When morning comes, they row back to the dragon ship and clear all the bodies away, wash the blood from the deck. And when all that's done, they take all the treasure and carry it into the castle. Oh, and they make a coffin for Thorolf, but they don't bury him. Hmm. Thorsten says he's not to be buried there. So while Thorolf chills in his coffin, Thorsten and his remaining companions spend a week healing up and readying for their next adventure. Well, they're not done? Not just yet, no. Well, whatever Thorstein and company are planning next, it will have to Mm -hmm. wait until our next episode. I believe that they're heading for the nearby shores of Sweden for another adventure before the whole narrative gets swallowed up by the nothing. That is, we're stopping right here. Uh, But uh, yeah, but before we go, John, uh, what do you uh, what do you think about dipping a toe into the listener rune sack? We haven't been there in a while. uh, Yeah, it's been a while since we've done that. Yeah. So, uh, well, it's been a while since we've done pretty much anything at this point, uh, aside from the uh, Christmas episode. All right. Uh, What do you got? Well, uh, this is a conversation that's been playing out on Discord, our unofficial official Discord community for Saga Thing. It's a great place to be. And if you're not on there, by the way, please stop by. At this Mm -hmm. point, we're really just the noisy part of this whole community. The, uh, the Discord folks are much faster than we are at answering most questions. Yes, yes. In fact, uh, this is a conversation that started with a question from a new member over there, Swims Like a Seal, great name, uh, who <laughs> asks about weddings in Saga Age Scandinavia. 
Hello, swims like a seal. Now, the question is this. I find myself in the position of having to draw a comic book sequence with a Saga Age Icelandic wedding ceremony. I studied monks in grad school, and suffice I it to say... I already have questions. <laughs> uh, I have some thoughts. Uh, I'm in way over my head on this one. Uh, so what sources, if any, suggest details of what a wedding might have looked like in Iceland circa 1000? So far, I've only gotten vague internet tips like blah, 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 Vikings TV show or blah, 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 Thor's cross-dressing wedding. Any help mm. would be much appreciated. So, John, there we go. Okay. So, I know there's been a few answers already given on the Discord, but I figure we can take a shot at this as well. Fire away, John. Uh, well, I, I said we, but okay. Go uh, ahead, John. I know you... what the... <laughs> Carry the load. Yeah. Uh, I know the question is getting at, right? There's a kind of Hollywood shorthand for medieval wedding. Oh, yeah. Uh, it involves people with laurels in their hair, fancy dresses for the ladies, maybe armor or velvet coats for the men. Mm-hmm. Candles. And a Christian or pagan priest conducting a ceremony that probably involves the married couple's hands being tied with ribbon or something while rose petals float down around them. Yeah, this is a good time to talk about marriage. Mowage. Mowage. Uh, but uh, yeah, right. this is. Or you know, the final know. scene of Prince of Thieves or. <laughs> yeah, any number of things. Um, uh, oh, the, the lovely wedding of um, Arthur and Guinevere in the musical Camelot Absolutely. on film. Absolutely. Beautiful stuff. Uh, but yep. yeah. So you know so, the kind of thing I mean is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Most of that, yes. Uh, but there, there's a reason filmmakers have to invent a lot of that stuff, John. Well, I mean, if we're talking about the sagas, yeah, it's because the sagas don't generally go into detail about weddings. Yeah. Uh, what we have is some examples of how weddings were depicted, but not exactly how they actually happened. Yeah, and we can skip over the complicated business of how weddings were arranged and the consent issue for now. Uh, we're just talking about right, what weddings now. look that, like. Right, that would be a very interesting uh, discussion all by itself. Uh, we can also skip all the difficulties in actually arranging the wedding, getting the word out, uh, even making sure people turned up on time, right? I mean... Uh, Jenny Jawkins makes the point that travel difficulties and sailing delays could really complicate something like a wedding where you kind of need everybody to be in the same place at the same time. So we're, we're just talking about the actual ceremony and maybe the party afterward, right? Yeah, because, well, sagas are almost exclusively concerned with the second part. Mm-hmm. The, the wedding party is much more interesting than the structured ceremony of the wedding itself. The social element of a wedding, right? The, uh, the, the reception, right? It's an opportunity for plot and character development. And if we take the most book prosist view of the sagas, the narrative shapes the story. A wedding isn't about the ceremony. It's a chance to move the story forward in some dynamic ways, since the occasion brings people together who might otherwise have been avoiding each other because of some tension between them. Well, pretty words, John, but that's not what Swims Like a Seal is talking about. Uh, They want details about what the wedding looked like because they're going to draw it. I mean, we get a few of those, right? I mean, the the wedding was generally as lavish as the host could afford to make it. And most of the expense that we know about went to food and drink for the guests, not to decorating or elaborate clothing. Yeah, I was, I was looking through the answers on Discord and uh, Elf the Inkstained and Drea the Needle Lore Keeper, uh, both very active over there, very wise people, uh, both made the point that wedding clothes weren't a thing. Uh, Everyone Mm -hmm. would have just worn the best clothes that they had. Uh, Maybe a new outfit would be purchased or made, uh, but it would still just be clothes, nice clothes. 
Uh, there's no equivalent to the white wedding dress or tuxedo of modern European and Western tradition. It just didn't happen right. back then. Right. I mean, there, there are references to the women wearing linen veils and bits of finery. Uh, and there are some later sources that refer to the use of an heirloom bridal crown that would be passed around among members of a family. Yeah, but it's not clear whether that tradition goes back to the saga age. And, yeah. and other than that, there, there isn't much that suggests a social expectation of fancy dress at all. Yeah. Andy, did you wear a tuxedo at your wedding? Yes. Yes, I did. I remember I got married at 20 and I knew, I knew very little of the world. So I just did kind of what the basic <laughs> formula was. Um, right. But I, I know you definitely didn't. I remember your wedding. I was there. Yeah. I'm not really a tux guy. Uh, so the sagas are light on details about the clothing and the ceremony or even to the degree that there was a ceremony. Right? Um, there's just a marriage and then a big multi-day party happens. Right, right. Uh, yeah, when I saw this question, it suddenly occurred to me that people might think we're we're just in the habit of skipping over the wedding in the sagas and going right to the reception. But again, oh, it's it's true. The, it's the gathering that's interesting to the saga narrative. It's the that's uh-huh. the political social kind of feature that the right. narrative is interested in. Well, and in the actual saga age, there's a real possibility that the wedding ceremony wasn't much of an event in itself. That's right. Yeah. But, it was, it was the fact of the gathering that mattered. The establishing of many witnesses to the union was what cemented the marriage. Mm-hmm. Even the Christian church wasn't really doing elaborate wedding ceremonies until later in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Obviously, things shift a bit as you go up the socioeconomic ladder, right? Because rich people always enjoy their pomp and circumstance. Yeah, and that brings up the other logistical problem involved making sure there was enough food and drink for everyone to feel that this wedding had been a success. Right, because that could take a lot of food and drink. Yeah. Right. The the more prominent figures in Iceland like to cast the invitations pretty widely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we get that wedding at the start of Laxdala Saga, uh, when Al the Deep-Minded is hosting her grandson Olaf's wedding and invites prominent people from, the dis- from districts all over the island. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't all show up, but it's still a very big party, and then later in the saga, Gudrun marries Thorkel Eyjafsson, and she has over 100 guests herself. And Thorkel brings uh, another 60. It's a big party. Yeah, it's a big wedding, and the feast could go on for days. Uh, I think we talked about this with that wedding that uh, Ald threw for Olaf. Uh, even the wealthiest Icelanders had to plan their weddings for times when superfluous food was readily available, right? which means a lot of weddings were tied to the agrarian calendar. That's right. So the sagas generally treat the party as the important part. But, you know, we, we've talked about this recently in our Hwata movie episode on the 13th Warrior. Uh, modern film tends to get this kind of thing mm-hmm. wrong, too. Uh, parties involving Vikings are usually depicted as drunken bacchanals that are loud, raucous, and dimly lit borderline orgies, often mm-hmm. with violence involved. Sure. Yeah, no, but this is where we can look to the sagas for counterexamples. Right. Large gatherings generally had rules regarding things like who sat where. Right, Food and drink were brought to the long tables where people sat. There's an example in Njal's saga when uh, when Gunnar is marrying Haldreth Longlegs. Actually, ha- hang on a second. Hang on a second. And you just skipped the part where I went and looked at the reference. Can uh, do. <laughs> um, Read that bit. So we have uh, uh, this description of the wedding. Gunnar had invited many people from the neighborhood, and he seated his guests in this way. He himself sat in the middle of the bench, 
and next to him on the inside sat Thrain Sigvison, then Ulf Algorthy, Valgard the Grey, Morth Valgardson, Runolf and the sons of Sigfus, with Lambi all the way in. On the other side of Gunnar, toward the door, sat Njal, then Skarpathen, then Helgi, then Grim, then Hoskuld, then Hoff the Wise, then Ingjald from Keldur, and the sons of Thorer of Holt over in the east. Thorer himself wanted to sit at the outer edge of the men of Worth, for then everyone would think himself well seated. Hoskuld Dalakolson sat in the middle of the opposite bench, with his sons to the inside of him, Hrut on the inside, other side of Hoskuld toward the door. There's no report about how the others receded. The bride sat in the middle of the crossbench. On one side of her sat her daughter Thorgert. On the other side, Thorhatla, the daughter of Oskram Eilagrimson. Thorold the poetess waited on the guests. She and Bergthora carried the food to the tables. I mean, it's, it's a lot, but you get the idea. Well, what I get there is that it's a, a, a lengthy list of names who was seated where. I mean, yes. And, and that's what's, as I said, that's what's reported who was there yes. and where they sat. And this exactly. is this is what the sagas are most interested in. Um, right. It's also it like, very formal. It's very it's very structured. Yeah. Yeah. Not the Bacchanal that that uh, we see in the films. Exactly. Um, at least from what the textual evidence might suggest. Um, but, but the, you know, that's also a good example of how the sagas use a wedding to advance the plot, right? Um, mm-hmm. The way Gunnar has seated the men at the tables, it all prefigures the feuds that will erupt later in the saga. So, Right, that's right. You know, the, re- the reception in that saga it could be more literary than representative of reality in any way. Sure. Uh, so, uh-huh. you know, we're getting into that trap of we don't really – we can't really say because – we can't really trust our sources and we don't have this old game again. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, what I think is interesting is at least that that reception that you just described is actually more like a modern wedding in some ways than most people would think. Yes. Um, and, and we should say with all the assigned seating, right. Uh, but we should mm-hmm. say though, that the part in movies about everyone drinking a lot, that's, uh, you know, I assume more or less accurate, right? Oh yeah. For multiple reasons. I mean, first of all, Weddings are a time to break out the special booze, mm-hmm. a, a bridal ale or mead for the principals involved, if you could get it. Right? I mean, uh, wine, the works. Yeah, and the host's obligation was to provide a large quantity of drink. Because mm-hmm. the second point is that getting drunk under someone's roof, that's a show of trust. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a gathering of people who are supposed to be in goodwill with each other. Mm-hmm. Right? Drinking means letting your guard down. Which is also obviously grist for the saga narrative as well. Uh, that yes. wedding that you just read about, Halgarth's uh, and uh, Gunnar's wedding, has an embarrassing moment where Gunnar's uncle suddenly announces his divorce from his sharp-witted wife and then drunkenly proposes to Halgarth's 14-year-old daughter. Yeah, <laughs> that's a fun story. I mean, it's obviously horrific, but it's a fun story in some ways. Yeah, so uh, I guess we've gone a long way. And said very little. Uh, do we have any conclusions <laughs> that we'd like to offer? Oh, here, no. John? No, not at all. Uh, <laughs> oh, wonderful. No, I, I think what we have is a confirmation that the sagas don't offer much detail about weddings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when, what they do offer is usually focused on the social and economic consequences of marriage rather than on the ceremony itself. Yeah. And I, I would say one thing that I learned working on the the Arabic saga graphic novel, uh, trying to negotiate with the artist um, on what to show and what not to show and how to show things mm-hmm. is that a lot of times you have to make compromises from 
historical accuracy in order to communicate with an audience that doesn't know all the stuff that you know. And so that's how right. we get things in movies, for example, that you know don't really represent the reality of a medieval wedding of, of any kind, but it communicates right. to the audience the, the pomp and circumstance and, and the, the nature of, of the ceremony itself. And that's well, the difficulty in many is- ways more important. Right. The problem is that we have so many things like the sagas where the details simply lost, right? They just aren't written down because they're not narratively compelling because they are so traditional, so much a ritual that there's nothing narratively unexpected about them. And so they don't compel inclusion in the narrative. Right. Right. In, right. in much in the same way that, uh, you know, most most of the time, if you see a wedding happen in a modern movie, it's because something's going to go wrong. Right? It's because something unexpected is going to happen. The If a wedding is just going to be the wedding part, it's not as compelling. Oh, that's uh, the, interesting. interesting. Or, or it's it's a it's a major moment. Uh, sure. You know, defining moment in the character's narrative. Right. Arc. No, if it's the culmination of the story, sure. Then, of yeah, course, yeah. you go through the ceremony. But right. in the sagas, that's almost never the case, right? The wedding is never the point of the narrative. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so the wedding itself is less important than the social sort of consequences of getting married and of combining these two groups of people. Yeah, exactly. So uh, so there you go. Um, there's much more on our Discord page. Uh, and if anyone's interested in taking this further, you can you can go check there. Uh, John, do you remember what yeah. uh, where, where that is? Is it in the Runesack section or where is that? Um, it's in the Discord page. Good job. Andy. All right, there, John. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for that insight. Um, good luck. This is what I do. <laughs> now, obviously, if uh, none of that helps, um, uh, swims like a seal. I think you could you could maybe go watch the Vikings TV show. Have you seen that? Sure. Or or maybe read about Thor's cross dressing wedding. Yeah, either one. The definitive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those are both good. Yeah, try that. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's going to have to do it for this episode. Uh, we'll be back soon with the next episode of Svarfdal Saga, when we'll deal with the consequences of Thoral's death. And the looming specter of the break in the manuscript. And all the narrative chaos that results. Uh, tell me again why we're doing this saga. Uh, well, because we have to do all of them, John. Could we maybe call in sick for the next episode? No. But uh, speaking of calling in, you can't. Because this isn't a live audio program, but... What a segue. What a segue. You can email us your questions. Yeah, it's like text messaging, only slower. Uh, If anyone does have a hankering for using retro technology to ask us things, how would they do that? Well, uh, we did mention our Discord server, which honestly is a great place to go to get a quick answer with footnotes, uh, Mm -hmm. usually from people that are smarter than us. Uh, I mean, sure. I mean, it's a high... It's a hive mind over there, and that's what's <laughs> what's really nice about it. Uh, but if you're willing to tolerate a somewhat slower time frame, though, uh, we've got Facebook and Instagram, where we are Saga Thing Podcast, uh, and on Gmail, where we are Saga Thing Podcast at gmail.com. And we've recently uh, added uh, Blue Sky, and oh, uh, right. I was on Tumblr for a minute, but who the things <laughs> that were happening there, I was just, uh, you know, so, I mean, you can, you can find us on Tumblr, uh, I'm just not... Using it right now. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, then find us on Blue Sky as well. And you also might try turning off your computer and turning it back on again. And if that doesn't work, contact your IT administrator. And maybe they'll know the answer to any questions you have. 
There you go. All right, we will be back soon with our second episode of Svarfdala Saga. The lacuna is coming. Until then, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. If yeah. you're comparing other sagas to this one, perhaps that's that's true. But uh, but again, it's a subject that I think we should revisit when we finally meet some women in the saga, and that that won't happen for a while. <laughs> when it does, though, for we, the record, definitely... he means in the saga, not a not when we leave our <laughs> yes. basements. <laughs> yes, no, I I know a woman. I know her very well. <laughs> My wife's a woman. Brother. I want you to send us out to get some Vikings where we can really test ourselves, earn some fame, where I can ask for either tribute or death, so that I'll be remembered afterwards. Father, I want you to send us out to get some Vikings where we can really test ourselves, earn some fame, where I can ask for either tribute or death, so that I'll be remembered afterwards. Father, I want you to send us out to get some Vikings where we can really test ourselves, earn some fame, where I can ask for either tribute or death, so that I'll be remembered afterwards.